Today's scripture comes from Matthew 25, 14 to 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the field and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And he who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered to him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that you would instruct us by it this morning, that we would not just be hearers, but doers of your word, and that as it is sown, that it would um, reach good soil, and that it would bear fruit in our lives uh, for your glory and for the good of our city. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is John, part of the team here. Uh, It's good to see you all. Uh, Today we are continuing in our series on the parables of Jesus, looking at these short stories that Jesus told um, to teach us about the kingdom of God and about God himself and about Jesus. And today, as you just heard read, we're looking at the parable of the talents, often called the parable of the talents. You may or may not be familiar with this one, but um, I'm going to suggest it can be tricky. It can be tricky. I was speaking to a friend this week, and uh, she asked what I was preaching on today, and I told her this parable. And she said, oh, I just, I just um, reached that part in my Bible reading plan, and I thought I understand it, but I don't understand it. And um, I think this can be a common response, not just to this parable, but to this section in the Gospel of Matthew, as we'll see. Um, because this parable is, is often a misunderstood parable, often a misunderstood parable parable. Because it's misunderstood, it is often misapplied. And um, it can feel a little bit like a kind of do better, try harder type lesson, as if Jesus is putting a weight on our shoulders for us to carry, um, that we're not doing enough for God. And so you're just going to whip yourself and try and do more. 
And at the end of the story, we read about outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and it legitimately can produce fear in us, right? It can make us fearful. We ask ourselves, have we done enough? Have we done enough for God? But what I want to argue today is that while this is a sobering story, it is a sobering story, it's meant to be a sobering story that is intended to provoke a response in us, it is ultimately a hopeful parable. So ultimately a hopeful parable. I'm hoping that we, um, as we look at it closely, as we try to understand it, and as we try to apply it in our lives, as Jesus intended it for it, for it to be understood and applied, that we would see it less as a weight on our shoulders, less as something that produces fear in us, but that something that, that might even produce faith in us, that might uh, even, dare I say it, inspire godly endeavor in this community, godly endeavor, kingdom exploits, that we might live fully for Jesus. So here's what I want to do today. I want to um, walk through this parable under the following headings. Number one, our responsibility our responsibility. Number two, our reward. Our reward. Three, a warning. Warning. Our responsibility, our reward, and a warning. So, our responsibility. Uh, you're probably uh, sick of me saying this and all the team saying this, but for us to begin to understand this text, what do we need to look at? We need to look at the context. The context. And when we pull back from this story, what we see is that the timing of this parable, when Jesus is telling this parable in the Gospel of Matthew, is between two very important events. The first is Jesus coming into Jerusalem, Jesus arriving into Jerusalem. And the second is his death on a cross in Jerusalem, right? Him coming into Jerusalem and his death on a cross. If you think about it in terms of the timeline of Easter week, it's the, the difference between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. It's in between this moment. And in this short period of time in Jerusalem, Jesus does a number of things. He, he frustrates the Pharisees and you know, all that good stuff. Uh, but one of the other things that he does is he has this intimate moment of teaching with his disciples, with just his disciples. And so in Matthew 24, just before our text that we've read, we read this. As he, that is Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the disciples in Jerusalem with him privately are going to ask Jesus about the immediate future and about the ultimate future. The immediate future of what Jesus is going to do and accomplish in Jerusalem, but also the ultimate future. What is he going to do at the end of the age? What is he going to do at the end of history? What will happen? The disciples, like many of us, they want to know what's going to happen and they want to know when it's going to happen. And uh, Jesus' response to them in this section in the Gospel of Matthew is in the form of a number of parables, a number of parables, a number of different teaching moments for his disciples. And his overall argument is don't be too concerned with the when, be more concerned with how you will live before the when. You don't know when it's going to happen, 
It's uncertain when it's going to happen, but it's certain that it's going to happen. And so your job is to focus on the way that you live your life now as you wait for it to happen. And so it's in this context that Jesus tells this parable privately to his disciples. And he says this, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and had made five more talents. And he also who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. So this is the story in a nutshell. This is the scene that's being set for us. There is a master who leaves three servants in charge of his property while he is going away, and he gives them different amounts based on their ability and capacity. And two of them go at once and trade and make a profit, and one of them digs a hole in the ground. Now, before we go any further, there's a point of clarification that we need to make before we proceed, and it's this. A talent in this parable is not your talents. A, pa- a talent in this parable is not your talents, which is really confusing. It's one of the reasons why this parable is misunderstood. It's even more confusing when you think about the fact that the word talent comes from this parable. And so it's like, what are we talking about here? Well, what we're talking about is in the first century, a talent was actually a weight of precious metal a weight of precious metal, and it represented a large sum of money. More precisely, one talent was worth about 20 years of annual salary. One talent, 20 years of annual salary. So so thought experiment, think what you make in a year, times that by 20, that's one talent. Or think of the average income in Vancouver, probably more than I make in a year, Times that by 20, one talent. So if you were to reread this story with contemporary eyes, we might read it like this. There was a master who gave to his servants. One of them, he gave $10 million. One of them, he gave $4 million. The other one, he gave $2 million. In fact, some commentators don't call this the parable of the talents. They call it the parable of the master who entrusted his servants with lots of money. (laughs) Not as punchy. What we're supposed to see is that for the original hearers, when they hear talent, they hear a vast amount of money, a vast amount of money. So what is Jesus teaching here? Is he teaching first century investment strategy? Is that what you're here for today? It's going to help you with your investment portfolio. Get your notes ready. Here it comes. No. But in a way, yes. In a way, yes. Jesus is going to help us with an investment portfolio, but the difference is it's a very different kind of investment portfolio that he is referring to. Let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus, as we know, is a rabbi, right? Rabbi was simply a Jewish teacher. And in rabbinic parables, uh, the, the departure of the master from the house, leaving and entrusting the servants in charge, uh, was often a, a technical way. It was a device used to describe how humans would behave when they thought that God was absent. When God was absent, how will humans behave? When the master leaves, how will the servants behave? was a metaphor for how humanity was to behave 
should behave or maybe did behave when God was apparently not there. If you read the Gospels, uh, you'll see that Jesus uses this technique quite a few times, actually. Uh, But what's interesting here is that Jesus, in this moment, Jesus, the rabbi, shows us that he is more than just a rabbi. Because he uses this technique not just to talk about how humans should behave when God is apparently absent, but how his disciples should behave in light of his impending absence. He uses this technique to speak of how his disciples should behave as he, as I said before, is going to the cross, as he is going on a journey. You see, the disciples may not have picked up on this yet, but we understand now as we look at this that Jesus is the master in the parable. Jesus is the master in the parable who is going on a journey with a promise of return and the servants that are being entrusted with his property are the disciples, his disciples then and his disciples. If that's the case, the question that we should ask ourselves is what is this great gift that has been entrusted to them? What is this vast amount of money that is being variably given out to them? And the answer is, it's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. It's the good news of the gospel that Jesus has come to bring about a new kingdom that has already begun in them and is going to go forth through them. That is what is being entrusted to his disciples. You see, the talents in this story, they represent not money or even our natural gifts and abilities. They represent the kingdom of God. This is the treasure that is entrusted to his disciples. And so when it talks about distributing talents among the servants, it's speaking about what we might call kingdom opportunities that that God gives to us to participate with him in what he is doing in the world. That's what what talents are, the the kingdom opportunities that are being entrusted to us. Cressidy, do you know that you have been entrusted with a kingdom? You have been entrusted with the kingdom of God. Do you know that the church has been given a deposit? might sound cheesy, but the picture that is being presented to us here in this parable is being entrusted with an investment portfolio, but not of money, but of the kingdom of God. Opportunities to participate with him in his building of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom opportunities, but, but this parable, actually, the emphasis of this parable is not just kingdom opportunities, it's more about kingdom responsibility. Responsibility. You see, the given talents, they represent not just opportunities that God gives to us to invest in his kingdom, but rather the responsibility that has been placed on us, that has been placed on the church, that has been placed on the people of God, the disciples of Jesus to invest this kingdom that has been given to him. Look again at the language of this parable in verse 14. It says that the talents had been entrusted to them. That word there implies that they were to do something with it. And he gave it according to their ability. That implies that the reason it was given according to their ability is because they were 
meant to do something with it. And two of them at least understood what was going on. But I'm going to suggest later that all of them understood what was going on because two of them went away and started trading immediately. What we're supposed to see here and what this parable implies is they weren't just given a gift, they were given a task. They weren't just given a gift, they were given a task. You see, the purpose of the gift was not to keep it safe, but to make it work. Not to protect it, but to invest it in Christ's city. This is what Jesus was saying to his disciples about the kingdom that he gave them, and it's what he is saying to us. That this gift that we have graciously received, it comes with it a responsibility. A responsibility that we weren't just given a gift, church. We were given a task. We weren't just given a message. We were given a mission, right? The church has not been entrusted with a kingdom to keep it safe. We were, we were entrusted with a kingdom to reap a harvest. We're to sow seeds and, and bear fruit. We're to work the field. We're to see people enfolded. We're to see the kingdom go out. Christ City, we have been given the kingdom. We have been entrusted with the kingdom. The church has been graciously given the kingdom. But with the kingdom comes kingdom responsibility. Point one, responsibility. Second point, our reward, reward. Verse 19 says this, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you have delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful, faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the master comes back. And he comes back to settle accounts. This is another indication for us that there was an expectation associated with the gift that was given. He comes and settles an account. They present to him their portfolio and their profit, and then they receive their master's response. And there's two things that I want us to see here. The first thing is that I want us to see is that um, the servants have different portfolios. The servants have been entrusted with different portfolios, and they have different profits. They make different profits. Look again, one was given Five talents, and he made five talents. One was given two talents, and he made two talents. Why, why is this important? Why, why, would, why would there not just be two servants? Why are we comparing two faithful servants? Well, I think this is important because what it tells us is that we're not all the same. We're not all the same, which for most of us won't come as a surprise, but for some of us might come as a relief. <laughs> What this parable reminds us is that we have different measures of kingdom opportunity and responsibility given to us according to our gifts and abilities. We've got different measures of kingdom opportunity and responsibility. Some of you here, you may have heard of Tim Keller. 
Tim Keller um, was probably the most prominent and influential pastor and preacher of our generation. And just last month, he passed away. He died. And um, I think it would be fair to say that there is not a pastor or preacher or uh, staff member on our team or even in Vancouver maybe that has not been heavily influenced by his work. Many of you, in fact, would have read his books and maybe heard his sermons. And um, it would be fair to say that Tim Keller is the measure by which all preachers are measured. It's brutal. <laughs> I, uh, I heard a story of a pastor in New York who once said that there are only two preachers in New York. There is Tim Keller and not Tim Keller. <laughs> brutal. Comparison can be crushing, can't it? But here's the truth. Tim Keller was given a measure of kingdom opportunity and responsibility according to his ability and his capacity, and praise God, he was faithful with it. In fact, just last month, he entered into the joy of the master. And so, while we can praise God for Tim Keller, we might also praise God that we're not Tim Keller. Right? We might not be able to do all that Tim Keller has done and, and accomplished. We might not have his gifts and abilities. In fact, we have different gifts and abilities. You know what? That's okay because God in his wisdom has given you kingdom opportunities and kingdom responsibility in accordance with your gifts and your capacity and your abilities for his glory. Your job is simply to be faithful for what God puts in your hands, for who God puts before you. God entrusts individuals in the church variably, variably, which means there is no room for comparative shame, but also there's no room for comparative pride. You just need to be faithful and obedient with what God has placed in your hands, with what he has entrusted to you. First thing we need to see is we're not all the same. But the second thing I want us to see is that while we're not all the same, the master's response is. Look again. Two responses were given for the two servants. The first servant receives this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the second servant comes up and presents. Three talents less, by the way. What does he receive? Exactly the same words. Exactly the same words. Different lives, different capacities, different responsibilities, but the same response of the master. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because, as I said at the start, we can hear the words responsibility and reward, and we can hear, you need to do better, you need to try harder, I'm not doing enough, have I done enough, have I hit the mark, as if there is a kind of a dollar amount that we need to achieve in order to receive the words of affirmation of God. That's how we view our relationship with God, as if there's a, a dollar amount, and the problem is, you look down the aisle and you think, they're definitely doing better. They may have reached it. I want to be clear here. This parable, it does teach that there is both responsibility and reward in the kingdom of God, but it does not teach that in any way we earn our way to God. 
It does not teach that we earn our way to God. Think about it for a second. How does the parable begin? It begins with a gracious gift from the master, right? The master gives his servants a huge amount of money. By the way, an amount that they would never be able to have outside of the gracious gift of the master. The servants didn't earn it. They simply received it and lived in faithful obedience to what it entailed. They lived in faithful response to it. And the commendation from the master is the same, irrespective of the amount of profit that they made. They just had to be faithful for what they had received. You know why? Because God is not looking for perfection. He's looking for your obedience. He's looking for your faithfulness to receive what he has given you graciously and to do with it what he has called you to do with it. This is the Christian life. We don't earn our way to God here. That's not what we teach here. We don't earn our way to God. We simply live in obedient response to God's grace to us. We might say it like this. There is, there is an expectation of activity in the Christian life. There is. There's an expectation of activity in the Christian life. But all Christian activity is reactivity. It's reactive to what we have already received in Christ. And so the question is not, have you been faithful enough? But simply this, do you live by faith? Do you live by faith? Faith, if you remember our summon series, it's this. Faith is our active obedience in response to what we have already graciously received in Christ. It's our response to what we have already graciously received. And this is what the first two servants did. They responded to what they had graciously received. And as a result, they got a reward. And so the next question we need to ask ourselves is, what is the reward? Look again at verse 21. The master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." What is the reward for a life of faith? What is the reward for a life of faith? Well, at first glance, this parable tells us that there are two rewards. The first is seemingly more responsibility, right? You have been faithful over little. I'm going to set you over more. More responsibility. The second is the joy of the master. What I want to suggest to you, propose to you today, is that these two things are one and the same thing. Let me explain what I mean. If you, uh, if you think more broadly about the story of the Bible that is presented to us from Genesis to Revelation, what Jesus is doing with his disciples in this moment is simply reinviting them back into what God had created humanity for in the beginning. That's what he's doing with his disciples. He's re-inviting them back into what God had created humanity for originally. If you remember back in Genesis, humanity is created to bear God's image in the world, to live in relationship with God and in relationship with one another as stewards of creation. That's what we were made to do, to be conduits of God's love and his grace and his mercy and his law and his commands. And, that, and that as we do that, as we live in faithful obedience to God, the, the world is blessed, God is glorified, but you know what also happens? We receive our ultimate joy and satisfaction. 
That as we do the will of God, that we receive our joy and satisfaction. Do you see what's going on here? You see, Jesus is, is doing much more than simply telling 12 dudes how they should live while he's going away. What Jesus is doing is he is reinviting humanity back into its intended, created purpose. He's inviting us to live as we were created to live. And so when we talk about kingdom responsibility, if we think of it as a burden, we've, we've misunderstood it. When I'm talking about kingdom responsibility, I'm not talking about a burden that is placed on us, but rather an unburdening to live as we were created to live. You see, the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, the tasks of the master to do the Lord's will and the joy of the master are actually intertwined. We find joy. Do you know that? If you want to know where you find joy today, do the Lord's will. Be obedient to God. And as you do the Lord's will, do you know what you're going to find? Joy. You're going to find satisfaction. That's why the reward of the servants is to be entrusted with more work. <laughs> the reward of the servants is to be entrusted with more. That's why the Christian life now, do you know this? The Christian life now is exactly the same as eternal life, just different as a matter of degree. We have responsibilities now to live in the kingdom of God, to find joy in the kingdom of God. But one day we will have more responsibilities and more joy. Church, you know what the reward for the Christian life is? It's more of the Christian life. And if that is not joy to you, you're not living the Christian life. The reward for the Christian life is more of the Christian life. It's more of God. It's more of the master. It's more of the kingdom. It's more responsibility. It's more joy. Point one, our responsibility. Point two, our reward. And lastly, a warning. A warning. Look again at our text, verse 24. He also who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I do not sow, have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. So, having rewarded and commended the first two servants, the master now turns to the third and the mood of the parable shifts. The parable takes a sobering turn. It moves from reward to punishment. It moves from joy to weeping. What I hope has become clear as I've tried to explain what is going on in the parable, is that the difference between the first two servants and the last one is not a difference in kind of investment strategy or how risk-averse they are. Like, like all of the different strategies can be commended. One was just more conservative than the other. 
The difference is not an investment strategy. The difference between them is the difference between obedience and disobedience. Between obedience and disobedience. The third servant isn't simply risk-averse. He is disobedient to his master, or in the words of his master, he is wicked and slothful. Wicked and slothful. What's clear from the text, it's very clear from the text, time and time again, there's indications of this, that the third servant knew that the talent came with responsibility, and yet he was disobedient. He did not embrace that responsibility. He rejected it. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is why? Why is he being disobedient? And I want to suggest that there are, there are two answers. Two answers. The first one is the obvious one because this is what is shown us in the text. The first answer, why he was disobedient, is because he had a low view of the master. He had a low view of the master. We read, didn't we, that he thinks his master is a hard man. He thinks his master is a harsh man. But as we think about it for a second, apparently he thinks his master is a stupid man too. Right? Imagine for a second you own a business. In fact, you might own a business. So imagine this scenario. This parable is describing something like you, as the business owner, go on vacation, and you probably go on vacation, you're a business owner, probably four weeks or something, I don't know what you take. Four weeks you've gone away, and what you've done is you've put a few people in your business in charge of operations, and then you get back after four weeks, and, and you see that, that one of the people that you have put in charge of operations has not come into the office once since you've been gone, and, and then you go and confront him or her, and... Um, and their response to you is, actually, I think you've got an anger problem. And I was a bit worried that you've got an anger problem. So I didn't come in because I didn't want to mess anything up. And um, that's, that's why I didn't come in the entire time you were away on vacation, even though you told me that I needed to look after the thing. How would you respond to that? Other than finding those boxes that you give to people as they clear their desk... I think my, my initial response is to say something like, I never used to have an anger problem. You'd probably respond by saying something like, you think I'm a fool, don't you? You think I'm a fool, don't you? In Christ City, this is how some of us treat God. This is how some of us treat God. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the most dangerous thing that you can possess is bad theology. That the most dangerous thing that you can possess is bad theology, to have a low view of God. And the reason is because not only does this version of God that you have created, not only is he unworthy of worship, not only are you obscuring yourself to his goodness and his grace and his kindness and his majesty and his glory, but you can fool yourselves that you can fool him. You can fool yourselves that you can fool him with your excuses. This is what the servant does. The first and foundational problem of the wicked servant is that he had a low view of the master. He had a low view of the master. And the second 
problem that he has, is, which is often paired with the first, is he had a very high view of himself and what he wanted to do. You know, one of the things that's often unnoticed in this parable is just how long the master is away for. It says in verse 19 that he was away for a long time. It says, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And the question that we should ask ourselves is, what was the servant doing the entire time the master was away? That's what I would have thought if I was the master, if I was the business owner who had came back after however long. What have you been doing this entire time? Okay, so day one, you dug a hole, which I admit is quite hard. If you've ever tried to dig a hole, it's quite hard. What did you do on day two? What did you do on week two, month two, year two? What have you been doing this entire time? The answer is, he was living for himself and not the master. He was living for himself and not the master. Living as if he had no master. This is why he was disobedient. He was living as if he had not been entrusted with a task. As if he was not a servant. As if he had no master. As if the master was never going to return. And this is the point of the rabbinic technique that is being used here. How will humanity live when God is apparently absent? How will the disciples, how will the church live as we await Jesus' return, the answer is that some of us will live as if God were absent. That some of us will live as if Jesus is not coming back. As if there is not going to be a day where we have to give an account for our lives. And Jesus says the consequence of this type of life is this. We read in verse 29, for to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the close of this parable, Jesus here describes the result of living for ourselves other than for the master. That's what's being described here. This is the consequence. Jesus uses this imagery of outer darkness and weeping of gnashing of teeth. The image that is being presented here for us is being cut off from all that is good, including God himself. In fact, a better way to say that is being cut off from God and therefore all that is good. What is being described here is separation and sorrow. Christ City, the language, as hard as it is for us to hear, and it is hard for us to hear, this entire section in Matthew is, is tough. This language is used over and over by Jesus. As hard as it, as it is for us to hear, it is the consistent language that the Bible uses to describe the end for those who reject God. The end for those who reject God. The consequence of rejecting God is naturally separation from him. The consequence of rejecting his goodness and his joy is naturally sorrow. And this is the warning in the parable. This is the warning. In this parable, as in all of the Bible, two paths are presented for us. Two paths. One of faithfulness and one of unfaithfulness. One of obedience and one of disobedience. 
an invitation into life and joy, and a warning about death and sorrow. If you're here today and you have not yet accepted Jesus' invitation to be reconciled to God, to find life and find joy and find satisfaction, then this choice is being presented to you today. These two parts, to accept Jesus or to reject him. An invitation to accept this invitation into participation in the kingdom of God and to find your, your satisfaction in him or to reject Jesus, to choose separation from him and sorrow as a result. And let me just say humbly, this warning extends to those of us who profess Jesus with our mouth but deny him with the way that we live. You know, the Bible has a category for those who say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus responds to them and says, I never knew you. This is when we, we mock God, when we say, Lord, Lord, but we actually live for ourselves. Our lives bear no fruit of repentance, no evidence of faith. We come to church, but in reality, we are living for ourselves rather than for the master. And if any of this rings true, I want you to hear me today. Jesus warns us because he loves us. It may sound harsh, but Jesus warns us because he loves us. He warns you because he loves you. And he is inviting you to choose joy, to choose life all of which can only be found in him. Would you stand as we respond?